welcome back to Innocence Advocate Stephen's Story. I'm your host, Jennifer Barlow. This is episode five, DNA. Last week, I shared with you the details surrounding Stephen's arrest, the violence, and the trick the detectives pulled so that they could arrest Stephen without a warrant. This week, I'm going to focus on DNA in the case and whether or not it had anything to do with the crime. Was the DNA connected to Stephen, and did it prove Stephen's involvement in the crime? During the initial investigation of the crime scene, one button was found. That button became the crux of the investigation, the prosecutor's case, and Stephen's arrest. On May 14, 1996, forensic scientist Donald Dollar found a white three-hole button on the side of the Scarabelli's lawn. The button was photographed, tagged, and analyzed. Thomas Zavesky, another forensic scientist, was the first to analyze the button three days later. His analysis included the removal and testing of a fiber found on the thread attached to the button. However, no results were obtained through his analysis. The button was not examined again until four years later in 2000. The detectives in this case testified that the button was of significance to the case from the moment they found it. Their goal and motivation was to find out where the button originated. Detective Rain was tasked with finding the brand of shirt to which the button belonged. This task sent him to New York City to speak with a lawyer, Stan Silverstein, at a holding company for the Hathaway brand. After showing the photograph to the lawyer, he concluded that the three-hole button was unique only to Hathaway. It was, in fact, their trademark. The problem that plagued the detectives was that no Hathaway shirt was ever found in their investigation. To this day, the origin of that button remains unknown. However, the only place they searched for the shirt was Stephen's property. Twice, in fact. Both times, they walked away empty-handed. To my knowledge, no other properties, especially of those of other people of interest, were ever searched for the shirt. The detectives in this case would have loved to have proof that the button on the lawn was Stephen's, having been torn off during his struggle with Kristen and left behind for them in order to solve this murder. But that is not what they were given. However, that did not stop them from making inferences and assumptions in their desperate attempt to connect that button to Stephen and to the murder. Their only means of accomplishing those inferences was through the use of a degraded partial DNA profile. Forensic scientist Robert Bauman received the button for analysis on September 27, 2000. During his direct examination by the prosecutor, he testified that when he first tested the button and the thread using the STR process, it didn't reveal any human DNA being present. However, after he cleaned up and concentrated the sample, he was able to obtain a partial profile on the button. The sample was so small that Mr. Bauman consumed it in its entirety, though he testified that he created copies of the sequence that remained in the laboratory. The STR testing method he used deals with nuclear DNA, which is inherited from both a biological mother and father. Mr. Bauman testified that he was able to achieve a result out of five of the 14 addresses that they look at. Out of those, one was for gender. So in addition to knowing it was a male sample, he had four out of 13 addresses to compare in his sample, so not even half. How did it come to be that that degraded and partial profile was matched to Stephen? Garbage and assumptions. Garbage was taken from the curb of Stephen's home on more than one occasion. The hope was that the Hathaway shirt or something linked to Kristen would be discovered, but that never happened. What the detectives did find were a few napkins with blood on them and one semen-stained napkin. When the blood was first introduced as evidence, Stephen's lawyer was enraged by what he considered to be another attempt to taint the jury and prejudice Stephen's chance at a fair trial. The reason for the upset was that the prosecutor presented the blood as if it were somehow connected to Kristen or Stephen. During a break in the trial, the judge and the two attorneys discussed the napkins, which resulted in Stephen's lawyer requesting that the judge tell the jury that the blood did not belong to either Kristen or Stephen. He wanted the judge to make sure the jury was clear on that point. 
Additionally, the judge only allowed one napkin to remain in evidence, but not the others. The reason for allowing one to remain is still unknown. Because the blood did not match Stephen or Kristen, the assumption was that it belonged to Stephen's mother. Mr. Bauman testified that the DNA on the button was male, the semen on the napkin was male, and the blood on the napkin was female, but the blood and the semen had a DNA relation. So they concluded that the blood was Stephen's mother and the semen was Stephen's. And that again, he had matched just four markers he had on the button out of the 13 that are normally in our DNA. So he came to the conclusion that those DNA could originate from the same individual. After Stephen's arrest in 2001, his DNA was taken and that exemplar was then sent to Mr. Bauman. He tested the known sample from Stephen and determined that he was a match to the DNA profile from the semen-stained napkin. He tested the known sample from Stephen against the button and five markers matched. So because the DNA on the button was a partial profile, he was only able to match those same five markers to Stephen's profile, one being gender. My father gave a DNA sample during the investigation in which he was ruled out for having no DNA comparisons to any items in the case other than being a blood relative to Stephen. No other family members of Stephen gave a DNA sample. My uncle John was ruled out as having DNA on the button, but that ruling out was not scientific. It was simply because he was not tested, so there was no way to prove whether he matched the DNA on the button. Additionally, my grandfather was ruled out as a match to the DNA on the button because the forensic scientists made educated assumptions. He assumed that the bloody napkin found in the garbage was my grandmother's. Mr. Bauman testified that he could not state for a fact that the blood belonged to my grandmother because he didn't have a DNA sample from her. So he made the assumption that because she was the only female living in the house that the blood must belong to her. Stephen's lawyer asked him if any other females had been in Stephen's home, which was a question that he obviously couldn't answer. He didn't know. The female blood, which was not Kristen's, could have come from my mother, myself, my sister, other family members, church or community members who visited my grandparents. Just because Stephen didn't associate with visitors does not mean that no visitors were ever in the home. This partial DNA match was all the evidence the detectives needed to establish that they had the right man all along. Though they considered this evidence strong, a big hole still remained. And that was the fact that the button was never proven to be linked to the crime itself. During his cross-examination, Donald Dollar emphasized that it was not scientifically possible to determine when the button first appeared. He was asked by Stephen's lawyer if it was fair to say that the button could have been on the Scarabelli lawn prior to Sunday night, the night of the crime. And Mr. Dollar, the forensic scientist, said, yeah, that was possible. When further questioned about how the button got on the lawn, Mr. Dollar testified that he didn't know. When asked if he had knowledge of how the thread became broken, he again testified that he didn't know. Stephen's lawyer continued to question the lack of proof that the button was related to the crime when he inquired of the scientists as to whether or not DNA may have transferred to the button by having it be simply picked up and thrown. The forensic scientist answered, yes, that is possible. The forensic experts were not the only people who were questioned regarding the actual proof of when the button appeared. Detectives also testified that they were only able to guess when the button wound up on the Scarabelli yard. But that would be opinion, and so no factual information suggested when the button appeared or how it ended up in their yard. Additionally, no DNA from Kristen was found on the button, suggesting that she did not pull it or touch it, and no witness ever mentioned Kristen's struggle involving the pulling of a button off of a shirt. The origin of the button remains pure speculation. A vital piece of the picture that must also remain at the forefront is the proximity of the Scarabelli lawn and Stephen's home. This button with the partial profile, it wasn't obtained on a victim's lawn miles away from Stephen's home or in another neighborhood. This button is found on the Scarabelli lawn, which literally grows onto Stephen's driveway with no separation. So no Hathaway shirt was ever found. 
no shirt with a missing button, regardless of brand, was ever found. The forensic experts could not say when the button got on the lawn or how the button got on the lawn. All they had was a partial degraded profile of Stephen on the button. But where is the proof of the actual crime? In my neighborhood, we throw items back and forth all the time. Kids will throw balls and toys over the fence and we get windstorms that blow things around and we usually just toss those items back over to other people the next day. What if something happened to one of my neighbors and my DNA was on an item I had thrown back over the fence? If that was my only connection, how could I possibly be responsible for what happened to them? Now that may seem like an unrelated or exaggerated scenario, but that is actually what we are looking at in Stephen's case. This was the evidence that the detectives believed was enough for his violent arrest. But what did that button actually prove? Perhaps the button wasn't shaping up to be as strong as the prosecutor had hoped, but he had another inference he wanted to give to the jury. Hair. Hundreds of hairs were collected in the course of the investigation and examination of Kristen's clothing and body. Out of those hairs, only two were used to point guilt towards Stephen. So two hairs out of hundreds. Yet again, the hairs were not linked to the crime itself. And actually, no hairs collected were a match to Stephen. So how does this work? While Donald Dollar, the forensic scientist, was investigating the Scarabelli's lawn and viewed the button, he continued to follow the path along Stephen's driveway, which is where he indicated the visible drag marks that led to a hair adhered to Stephen's driveway. Due to the bleached nature of the hair, later analysis by Thomas Zavesky indicated that the hair was a match and characteristic to Kristen's. The hair placement was consistent in path to the drag marks through the neighborhood. Therefore, in testimony, the possibility that her hair was on his driveway as a result of being dragged across his driveway was established. The prosecutor was using this to say, hey, she was on his driveway, but they already established that they believe she was dragged over his driveway. But again, they said there was also drag marks in other people's yards as well. So Stephen isn't unique in this regard. But that hair wasn't actually the one they chose to focus on. There was one other hair that became the focus in this case. A one centimeter hair was removed from Kristen's shirt and tested using the mitochondrial method, meaning a link cannot be made to an individual person, rather to a maternal line. The hair in question was shorter than the typical requirement, which is two centimeters in length. This one was one centimeter in length, so it had to be consumed entirely in the testing process. The hair on Kristen's shirt was later determined to be a match to the maternal line of Stephen, so that may have included his mother or one of his two brothers. However, microscopic analysis also demonstrated that the hair was dyed, so it did not belong to Stephen as he had never dyed his hair. The prosecution interpreted this hair as having originated from Stephen's mother and that her hair had transferred to Stephen and then to Kristen during a struggle. No scientific reason was produced for how the hair wound up on Kristen's shirt, but the following remarks make it clear that another option was prevalent and that was the dragging. Stephen's lawyer asked Mr. Dollar, the forensic scientist, that if my grandmother's hair was on her driveway and Kristen's body was dragged across that driveway, could my grandmother's hair have been picked up on her shirt that way? And the forensic expert said, yes, that was a possibility. Though this hair became a focus for the prosecution, other hairs became the focus for the defense. The following hairs were collected during the scene investigation and body analysis, but these hairs were unidentified at trial. A clump of hair was found on the Scarabelli lawn, Another hair was found on Kristen's shirt, and another on the morgue shroud around her body. These hairs were all tested against the known samples they already had, and the result was that none of those hairs were a match to Kristen or Stephen. These hairs are still unidentified to this day. So the important question still remains, who else's hair was on Kristen's lawn and her body?
Additionally, no other neighbors, especially those who also had drag marks present on their driveways and lawns, gave a hair sample. Was this because the detectives did not want to have further proof of the possibility that Kristen's clothes picked up hair and debris while being dragged through the neighborhood? Because if they did prove that, it would negate my grandmother's hair being present. And since that was already a strong inference that my grandmother's hair was on her from being dragged, I don't think they wanted to add any more proof to that. What exactly does the DNA prove in terms of this case? We have the button, which was discovered on the Scarabelli lawn. The button's partial sequence may have belonged to Stephen, my grandfather, or my other uncle. But let's infer, as the prosecutor wanted, that the DNA on the button was in fact Stephen's. Testimony had already established that the lawn in which the button was retrieved touches the driveway of Stephen's home within close proximity. Testimony had already established that no way existed to determine when the button got on the lawn or how the button got on the lawn. The button had potential to be on the grass days before the crime occurred, or to have originated there by being picked up and tossed. Testimony established that no scientific way existed to tell how the button was removed from the shirt, especially since no Hathaway shirt was ever found. What does the button prove in relation to the murder? Nothing. Nothing connected the button to the murder. We have the one centimeter piece of hair from Kristen's shirt that matched the mitochondrial DNA from Stephen. This means that the hair may have belonged to my grandmother, my uncle John, my father, or Stephen. The hair was dyed, so that would rule out my father and Stephen, as neither of them had ever dyed their hair. Let's infer again, as the prosecutor wanted, that the hair belonged to my grandmother. Testimony already established extreme reasonable doubt in inferring that the hair transferred from my grandmother to Stephen and then to Kristen. Testimony had already established that Kristen's body was dragged across several yards, so the possibility existed that the hair was picked up during that action. No other neighbor's hairs were tested against the unidentified samples on Kristen's shirt. What does the hair prove in relation to the murder? Nothing. Nothing connected my grandmother's hair to the murder, or in this case, to Stephen. The burden of proof in a criminal case is proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Surely the inferences the prosecution presented for these pieces of DNA leave room for substantial doubt in terms of connecting the evidence to the murder or to Stephen. These inferences are not the only issue presented within the evidence. All the DNA really proved was that Stephen and Kristen were neighbors. It did not prove that Stephen killed her. Another issue with the evidence is that the button was used to rule out every other person of interest. If their DNA was not on the button, they were not responsible for the crime, regardless of the lack of proof that the two were even connected. Additionally, the unidentified hairs were not tested against every person of interest. I'm going to stop and insert a thought here because there's a huge gap in the investigation that has been nagging at my family for years. I talked in episode two about the drag marks that Donald Dollar said were visible in the neighborhood, and I talked about the drag marks here in this episode as well as it related to the hair. But my family has never been convinced that the detectives or the forensic scientists actually had enough to prove that Kristen was dragged on the front yards and driveways of Cedar Road. Here's why. There were no skin fragments or secretion or indication of Kristen's body on those drag marks. Even after Donald Dollar Tape lifted the marks, he found nothing. Kristen's body had no grass blades in her hair, no grass or grass stains on her shirt, no dirt on her clothing or in her wounds. There's no small pebbles of any kind. There was nothing indicated on the drag marks or her body to prove that she was dragged through those yards. I'm not saying that she wasn't dragged or discrediting the medical examiner, but there really wasn't proof that she was dragged specifically on Cedar Road. And I'm also not discrediting the forensic expert in noticing drag marks, but there is another option. What could those drag marks they witnessed really be from? 
My grandparents wrote a letter to explain their every movement from that day, May 12th. And in that letter, they said that they dragged, keyword, multiple crates of flowers, roughly 130 plants in individual plastic containers, probably consisting of four pallets worth. Why did they do this? Well, for years, my grandfather was in charge of bringing Mother's Day flowers to all of the mothers in his church congregation. For years, he did the same thing. He would purchase the flowers a few days before Mother's Day, put them in the van, bring them home, and then drag the pallets from the van to the side of the house for sun and water because that's where the hose was. And he would do that until they were ready to be delivered. He would have been in his 70s during this time, hence why he had to drag the pallets. He could not physically lift them. These flowers would stay there on the side of the house until Sunday morning when he would drag, with my grandmother's help, the pallets back to the van to bring them to church to deliver them. That means on the day of Kristen's murder, Mother's Day, he would have, and my grandmother, be dragging those flowers to the van and bringing them that morning to church. Could the drag marks on their driveway be from that motion? dragging the flower pallets to and from the side of the house. This is also why the quilt referenced in episode two was in the back of the van, so that they could cover the back so when they put the flowers in, the dirt and water wouldn't get in the car. Additionally, the two other houses with what Donald Dollar described as drag marks may also have their own origin, the garbage bags. The garbage was put out on Sunday night and left on the curb for Monday's pickup. This neighborhood did not have plastic wheeled cans, so the neighbors would just carry their bags and set them on the curb. Could the drag marks be from these neighbors pulling their heavy garbage bags to the curb, creating marks in their grass? The drag marks are not continual. They do not start in Kristen's yard and continue all the way to the end of the street. There are complete areas with nothing in between. What would this mean for the crime? Maybe Kristen was dragged at some point like the medical examiner believed due to the abrasions on her body, but was she actually dragged through that neighborhood in front of those homes? Ask yourself this question. Wouldn't she have left behind skin or hair? Wouldn't her body have some grass stains or dirt residue? Now you may be thinking, wait a minute, you just explained away Kristen and your grandmother's hair because of the dragging. Yes, I did, as an option. But that's the point. I'm also saying that we know very little about the events of this crime. There are only three things that the detectives knew to be true. One, neighbors heard screaming and commotion. Two, Kristen was killed by neck compression. And three, her body was found under that tree. That's it. That is the only factual information that was presented. I'm not totally convinced that Kristen was dragged through the neighborhood, but that does not mean that there aren't other options for how the hairs wound up where they were. Obviously, we have the proximity. That will always be an explanation. The struggle is taking place on the grass closest to my grandparents' driveway. So Kristen may have lost a hair in the struggle and one got on the driveway. That piece of hair could have been there the day before. Or my grandmother's small piece of hair may have been in that area because her car was parked right there every day. Maybe whoever was struggling with Kristen pulled her body behind the van of my grandparents' driveway, which is right by the area on her grass where the commotion occurred. This still doesn't mean it was Stephen. Think about it. If you are strangling someone out in the open and you hear neighbors come out of the house next to you and across the street, or you see Robert Mirabel's car headlights as he pulls up, what are you going to do? 
probably not stay out there in the open. Maybe you move yourself and the other person to a place where you can't be seen, and perhaps that place was right there behind my grandparents' van. It would have been one of the only means of hiding in just a matter of seconds. So this still explains why one of Kristen's hairs would be on the driveway and one of my grandmother's hairs could be on her shirt. Because we have such little information factually, I can give you 10 scenarios and the police can give you 10 more. But in a court of law, when someone's life is on the line, you have to have proof of at least one of them. Is there enough proof that she was dragged through those front yards? Another point for those of you who are not familiar with the neighborhood, the house where her body was found is on a corner. That corner touches three roads. There's more than one way to access that corner. It's not like a cul-de-sac or a dead end where the only way you could have gotten to that house with her body was to go on Cedar Road. That's not the case. This corner is exposed from other streets. Did the detectives take all of this into account and investigate every possible angle, or did they stop investigating once they found any connection to Stephen? Because the detectives believe Stephen was the one, and they had to piece that story together, the drag marks actually helped them do this by claiming that Stephen would have access to the neighborhood. He didn't have a license or a car, so he would have had to stay in the neighborhood. But one, they never proved that theory. And two, what if those drag marks aren't from her? What if they're not from her and Tracy Slater, another neighbor who didn't testify but is referenced in the documents, did in fact hear screeching tires and Lillian DeSantis did hear car doors? Does that mean someone left with Kristen in a car and dropped her body off later on that corner and grabbed some garbage bags that were sitting out to put on her body? The detectives did not want to go near that theory because it removed Stephen and it opened up possibilities that matched more with other people. And they did not want to have anything that pointed away from him. But is that also why they stopped investigating those hairs? It seems like they said, oh, look, we found his mother's hair on Kristen's shirt. We have enough to keep putting our picture together. Forget about looking at those other hairs we found on her. We don't need them anymore. But those other hairs, those unidentified hairs, may hold the answer we are looking for. Who was Kristen with that night? The investigation and the information we do have is like looking at a bunch of blurry images. You can stick them together, but all you're doing is making a bigger version of that blurry image. The only way to clean it up and make it clear is to have proof. And that proof never came. All that happened was that more blurry images were added. I'm hoping through all of this that we can finally see a clear picture. The DNA was weak. Weak because it didn't prove any connection to the crime and because it could only be used to make inferences or those blurry pictures. But the investigation conducted by the homicide detectives was also weak. There are so many missing pieces and too many possibilities because there's such little factual information. When you have five and a half years to build a case, it better be good. Something that you can bring to a jury and show proof. They didn't do that. To learn more about the poor investigation, tune in next week to hear about other potential suspects who were overlooked during this investigation. One threatened to rape and kill Kristen, and another one confessed to involvement in her murder, more than once. Until next time, keep fighting for the innocent.